our comfort also as we go to worship him now. Let us now open the word of God to be taught by him. We will read from several places in the New Testament, first from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16. This is in connection with our our text, which will come from Philippians chapter 1. This will help us to get to know a little bit the Philippian church. So first, Acts 16, and we'll read verses 6 through 40. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia, that's Philippi as well as Thessalonica and the surrounding area, a man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we were where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and, and us, and crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. 
And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to to let you go. Therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed." So far from Acts 16, let's also turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll read just a few verses there. Second Corinthians 8, we'll read verses 1 through 6. Some words of Paul also about those churches in Macedonia. So he's writing to the Corinthians and he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. And then finally we'll read the words from which our text comes, Philippians chapter 1. The verses 1 through 11. Here now Paul writes to the church in Philippi. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So far, the reading of God's word. The text to which we'll be giving special attention are the verses 9 through 11 of Philippians 1. It's only three verses. Let's read those verses again. Philippians 1, verse 9. Paul writes, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So far. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, today we are going to be starting a new series since we finished 1 Kings. We may come back to 2 Kings before long, but we're going to be starting a series on the letter to the Philippians, and hopefully we'll be working on that series for at least several months. There's a lot in this letter, and we could be going through it much more slowly than we will. We could even go verse by verse. There's, there's very much that can be applied here in Alora, so we could probably be here much longer. But I do trust that as we work through this letter, you will also find it an incredibly encouraging and comforting and uplifting, strengthening and humbling letter that had been written to this small church in Philippi and has very much also to teach us here in Alora. And my hope is also that you would discover how this letter and the whole of Christian life centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's very much what the letter to the Philippians is oriented around. What we'll do this morning is I'll I'll first say a few words about the letter itself, who the Philippians were, where the letter was written from, and and then we'll focus on verses 9 through 11 of chapter 1 because I believe that's where Paul summarizes his purpose for writing the letter that he wrote. The Philippians were one of the smallest churches 
of the New Testament. They were initially just a small group of women, and we read about that. Uh, Usually when Paul would come to a city, he would look for the Jewish synagogue, and then he would go and preach there, first to the Jews, and then afterwards he would go to the Gentiles. But there was no synagogue in Philippi. And so we read in Acts 16 how Paul came to Philippi, after he had this vision of a man from that region, Macedonia, calling for him to come there and bring the gospel, he came to Philippi, and on the Sabbath, they went outside of the gate of the city to the riverside, where at least they hoped they might find a place of prayer. Since there was no synagogue, at least they could find that. And there, they found a group of women, including this woman Lydia, who is a seller of purple cloths, a fairly wealthy woman, and... As a result of Paul's preaching, she believed, she and her household, and and that would have included at least her children and most likely also some of her servants, and they believed and were baptized. And then a bit later, we read how Paul and Silas ended up being thrown in prison. Still, they're, they're still in Philippi. And perhaps you you know this story already very well, the story of the Philippian jailer. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and there was an earthquake, and the doors broke open. And and the Philippian jailer, when he woke up and he saw that they were free, uh, or, or that the doors were open, he assumed that they had gone out, and he was prepared to kill himself. He would have been severely punished for, for having let them escape. But then Paul yelled out from the prison, don't harm yourself, we're all here. And as a result of that, and probably as a result of hearing them singing hymns, and you can imagine already this jailer was being tortured by the thought of, what kind of people are they? How different they are from myself. And so when finally the doors broke open and he discovered they were still there, it says he was trembling with fear and fell down before Paul and Silas, and he himself became a believer. And that's the Philippian church. That's all the figures that we know about belonging to the Philippian church. Uh, they're, They're a small group, probably mostly women, and then you can include the servants in those women's households and the Philippian jailer and his household. So they were a small church, and they were in a very, very Roman city. It was a Roman colony, so a colony of of Roman soldiers. And it was a place where Jews and Christians were hated. Christians weren't really known yet, but they would soon be hated. But you can see when Paul came to the city and and he cast out the, the demon of this slave girl, the owners of that girl recognized him not as a Christian, but as a Jew, and accused him of Jewish customs like circumcision, which were, which were not culturally acceptable for the Romans. And so Jews were hated, and Christians, because they were considered a branch of Judaism, were just as much hated. And that's perhaps why there was no synagogue to be found in Philippi. But in spite of being small and persecuted on top of that, we can see that Paul, in this letter to the Philippians, Paul praises them to a degree that I don't think he praises any other church except maybe the Thessalonians who were in that same region. Paul lavishes them with praise. And he praises them especially for their partnership 
in the gospel. You can see that in verse 3. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. You can see it again in in verse 7. Paul writes to them, For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So even though this, this was a small church, mainly composed of women, and persecuted on top of all of that, that still did not stop them at all from taking an active part in the furtherance of the kingdom of God and the spread of the gospel. They showed a tremendous amount of support for the gospel and for the work that Paul was doing. From the moment Paul says that they heard the word themselves, they believed and they got involved in supporting Paul's work and taking care of them. If you turn ahead to to chapter 4, verse 15, you can see what Paul writes to them there. He says, You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except for you only. Even in Thessalonica, you you sent me help for my needs once and again. So just think about what an amazing witness this small this small persecuted church is and what an encouragement this church can also be for us here in Alora. We're not small like they were, though we're not a huge church either. But but look at how incredibly active and involved even a small church can be when they really believe the gospel and understand how important the work of the gospel is. And look at what amazing things God can accomplish through even a small church, even a church that's made mostly of women, the work that God can do with a church like that when they have that kind of belief and that kind of commitment. Their time, their energy, their money, their efforts, they all lined up to support the work that Paul was doing because they believed in the gospel and they recognized how life-changing, how important the work of the gospel was. So they visited him in prison and they supported him financially in his work in Thessalonica. And then they they even took on themselves the responsibility of being the sponsoring church for Paul, looking after all his needs wherever he would go to make sure he had everything he needed to keep preaching the gospel. And remember, these were brand new Christians. But they got on board because they recognized how how crucial the work of the gospel was. Let me quote just one more passage, and that's what we read from 2 Corinthians 8. And there Paul is encouraging the Corinthian church, a much larger church. He's encouraging them to help support a donation to the churches in Jerusalem. And there he he wrote to them those words that we, we read together. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given to the churches of Macedonia. So again, that's Philippi and Thessalonica. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy 
and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. He says they gave according to their means, and I can testify even beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the work of the relief of the saints. And this, he says, was not even as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. So he expected that they might go straight to Paul and say, hey, Paul, what should we do with our money? But they went first to the Lord, and then by the will of God, they came to us, begging us to be able to take part in that work. And so he says to the Corinthians, accordingly, we urge Titus that as he started, so he should also complete the work that these Philippians were doing. We, we urge Titus to complete that work also now with you. So he's taking the example of this small Philippian church, mostly women, and saying, look at what they're doing. Now you Corinthians can do so much more still if you'll keep carrying on that work. So what an amazing example and testimony that the the Philippian church can be. What What an amazing commitment from a small church. It's an amazing testimony of faith. And and these these are from two churches, Philippi and Thessalonica, that had experienced the worst persecution, the most suffering of all of the different churches of the New Testament. They demonstrated some of the greatest joy and the strongest commitment to being a part of of Paul's work. And, and, And notice that, that the commitment flowed out of their joy. Paul really emphasized that to, to the Corinthians. He says, it was their abundance of joy together with their poverty that overflowed in a wealth of generosity. So they didn't commit to the work of Paul because they felt like, now that we're Christians, we have to. But they did so because it was their heart's desire to be a part of that work that they considered more valuable than any other work that a church or people could do. And and so it's good for us to understand this then. The effectiveness and involvement of a church is not determined by their size or their financial means, but by their conviction in the truth of the gospel and their recognition of how absolutely important the work of the gospel is. That's what makes the church effective in the work of ministry. So that's the the Philippian church in in brief to give a summary. And, And we can see just from that summary why Paul loves this church as much as he does, why he writes to them with so much love and, and so much gratitude and affection. Because this church, this small church, would have been an immense encouragement to Paul as he's being thrown in prison, as he's facing uh, opponents. He can always look back to and remember this church that's still standing with him in spite of their own trials and persecutions, still supporting him, still standing next to him. Now, Paul wrote this letter from Rome. That's, that's the majority view. That's the view I take as well. There are a few scholars that say he was in Ephesus. Um, but I think the best evidence certainly supports the traditional view that he was in Rome. And so this then would have been after he had been taken prisoner in Jerusalem. You can read about that in Acts 21. And he eventually then appealed his case to Caesar. So if you remember that, that story well, um, you'll remember that there weren't ever any charges against Paul. 
he was taken prisoner in, in Jerusalem, and he eventually appealed his case to Caesar, and so he was taken by ship all the way to Rome, and that's where the book of Acts ends. We don't hear anything more about what happens. He gets to Rome, and that's the end of the book of Acts. And so here, as Paul is writing, we can assume he's still under house arrest in Rome. So he wasn't actually in prison. He was in a, in a sort of house arrest. He had the freedom to write. He had the freedom to, to invite friends in, but he couldn't leave. He couldn't go anywhere. And so he writes in verse 13 about even having the opportunity to preach the gospel, he says, to the imperial guard. And at the very end of the letter, if you look at chapter 4, verse 22, he even sends greetings from Caesar's household. So there's certainly evidence that he's in Rome. And he's under house arrest, but he's taking the opportunity to preach the gospel. And, hey, the imperial guard is right there making sure he doesn't leave. So there's a perfect group of people to preach to. And that's what he does. And he ends up somehow even having contact with Caesar's own household. If you jump ahead to chapter 2, verse 25, uh, you'll see then that one of the ways that the Philippians were supporting Paul while he was there under house arrest was by sending one of their own members, Epaphroditus, to go and take care of Paul's needs. And we don't know who Epaphroditus was, but, it, but it's certainly an amazing gift to have him from such a small and even persecuted church. They devoted one of their own members to be a full-time servant to take care of, of Paul. So maybe Epaphroditus might have been already a servant from Lydia's household or maybe from the Philippian jailer's household. We don't know. But this small Philippian church sent him to Paul to take care of his needs. And so again, you can see why Paul loved this church so much. As he's there under house arrest, he has a full-time servant to take care of his needs. And this man is coming from a church that does not have much financial means. He says they had extreme poverty. So you can see again in verse 8, he says, God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He loved this small church. And that then brings us to verses 9 through 11. As I mentioned, these verses essentially summarize Paul's purpose in writing this letter in the first place. This is why he sat down to write this. And so that's where I'd like to spend the rest of our time then this morning. And this will also summarize our goal for the next several months as we work through the letter of the Philippians. In verses 3 through 8, then Paul has told the Philippians how much he loves them, how grateful to God he is for their partnership and support. And, and also he tells them his confidence that God is at work among them and will finish that work. And then in verse 9, well, let's just read those, those verses again. Here's Paul's purpose in writing this letter. He says, It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So you can see the main thing right there at the beginning. He says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. That's his purpose for writing this letter. And so that's also the theme for this morning's sermon. You'll notice Paul doesn't say explicitly what that love is, is for. 
you, you, you're left asking the question, their love for what? But in the last several verses, he's been talking about their partnership with their partnership in the gospel. And so it makes sense to assume he's, he's referring to their love for the gospel and for Christ himself. That love, of course, is going to overflow into a love for one another as God's people, a love also for God's people everywhere. You think of their donation to the church in Jerusalem, and, and even a love for their own community in Philippi, their neighbors, their co-workers, and so forth. But it's safe to say he's thinking in the first place about their love for Christ Jesus himself and for the gospel. So that's his prayer for the Philippian church, that their love for Christ would abound more and more. There's no greater priority for us as a church as well than that we, than that we would be also filled with a deep, all-consuming love for Christ and for the gospel, and through the gospel, a love for the knowledge of God's glory, because that's what the gospel is ultimately all about. So let me say that again. There is no greater priority for us than that we would be filled with a deep, all-consuming love for the glory of God that comes through the gospel, that we see through the gospel, that then translates into a love for God, a love for Christ, and a love for the gospel. Because it's through the gospel that we're reconciled to God and brought into his presence. That's what happened with the Philippian church. Some of them were already worshipers of God. That's why they were meeting at that place of prayer. And so we read that in Acts 16. And so that means they they had already come to see some glimpses of the glory of God and as a result had fallen in love, so to speak, with the glory of God. They worshipped Him. And so when they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, they immediately fell in love with that gospel. They understood it to be consistent with the God that they knew. And they recognized that through the gospel, they now had access to the love and favor of the Father. And so, brothers and sisters, since that was Paul's prayer for that church, that their love for Christ would abound, there's no greater prayer of mine nor should there be any greater, of prayer, greater prayer of yours for this church that you and I also, likewise, would have a deep and all-consuming love for God and for Jesus Christ and for the gospel, the good news that God has reconciled us to himself through him. There's no greater priority for us as a church than that we would also have that love and cultivate that love so that that love would grow. Everything else that we do as a church flows out of that love and ought to contribute to that love. The preaching of the gospel that I do every week is aimed at showing you the glory of God so that you can once again see his worth and see the preciousness of the gospel that brings us into fellowship with God so that your love and my love would grow for the gospel, for Christ, and for God the Father himself. All the Bible studies that we do are aimed at cultivating that love and maturing that love. And so, brothers and sisters, let that be your all-consuming passion as Christians and in this Christian church, just as it was for the Philippians. Because God is worthy 
of that level of love. So Paul says, it's my prayer that your love would abound, increase or overflow, you could use those words as well, that your love would abound more and more. And then he says, with all knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, with knowledge and all discernment. Understand, brothers and sisters, knowledge and discernment, he doesn't mean those as extra things sort of on top of of their love as if you know he's praying for their love and oh while i'm at it i may as well pray for your knowledge and your discernment as well and he doesn't mean that as something additional to their love but as something essential to that love something necessary to keep that love pure without knowledge that love will be misguided And Paul knew that the Philippine church would be confronted with everything that Satan had to offer at his arsenal. All the lies, all the deceits, the heresies, the confusions, the fights that Satan would throw at this church. Paul's prayer is that they would be mature and discerning with knowledge so that their love would not ultimately be lost. So that their love would stand strong, so that it wouldn't morph into some other kind of love. Maybe you've heard the saying, doctrine divides, but love unites. And, and there's, there's maybe a grain of truth in that. It's true that an over-insistence on, on the minute details of doctrine done without love can certainly be divisive and, and destructive. But the reality is, at the same time, you cannot love the gospel and give your life to the service of God and the service of the gospel and the promotion of God's glory without knowledge, doctrine, to keep that love pure. Without knowledge, that love is going to be empty or misguided. And you can see here Paul's concern for the Philippian church. They're small. They're vulnerable. Their love is so great, but it's also, it's also so vulnerable. And he knows they're going to be challenged with false doctrines, with ideas that would lead them away from the gospel. Love for a false Christ, love for a false gospel will do no good at all. That's worthless. So to withstand those attacks on on the purity of their love and the purity of their faith, he prays that they would have knowledge to be able to refute wrong ideas that would lead them astray, that they would have discernment as well to detect those wrong ideas. So that's his prayer, that their love would abound with knowledge and all discernment to keep it pure, to keep it strong, and to keep it from going someplace else. And he desires, continuing, he desires that they would have that knowledge so that you may approve what is excellent. The word translated excellent here has to do with with worth or with what is good and, and worthy. It's the same word that the Lord Jesus says when he says, are you not of much worth, much more worth than many sparrows? So you can translate this word excellent also as, as worthy or good or valuable. And Paul's desire is that they would have the knowledge and the discernment to recognize what things are good, what things are worthy of their love, and what things are worthless and ought to be thrown away. The word translated approve here means to give approval after testing. So it's a word that's often used when you're talking about 
testing metals. They, they would be tested in the fire and then approved because the fire would prove that they, they are pure. And, and then you might reject whatever else came out of those metals that is worthless. And that's then Paul's prayer for the Philippians, that their love would abound with knowledge and all discernment so that they would be able to test and approve the things that come at them to see whether they're good and worthy of their love or worthless and worthy of being thrown away. And that, that the things that they are testing applies not just to, to doctrine, but also to life and practice, that they would know what ways are good to live, what ways are worthless and ought to be thrown away. His prayer is that they would have discernment and maturity to embrace what's good and reject what is worthless. Paul then continues in verse 10. He says, So that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So the reason he prays for that knowledge and discernment to approve what is good is so that ultimately, on the final day, this church, this Philippian church, can be presented before God as a church that remained pure and blameless. The word he uses for pure is, is actually not the normal word that's used for purity in the Bible, um, which usually refers to, to sexual purity. But this is a different word that, again, refers to, to metals. So you're talking about pure gold or pure silver, that kind of purity. So metals which are purified, and it has the sense of being unmixed or without any alloys. There, there's nothing else mixed in with, with their love. And that's what Paul's prayer is for the Philippians, that their love would be sincere that it would not be mixed in with other motives. So then Paul's, Paul's prayer for the Philippian church is that the love that they have already now, because he's just been talking about their love for, for the last eight verses, that the love they have now for Christ would remain pure and even more would grow, he says, would abound, would increase or overflow. And, and that it, their love would do that without other self-exalting or self-serving motives getting mixed in with that love. You can understand how easily that happens in a church. They, they love Christ. They love the gospel. They get involved in ministry and serving the gospel. But the reality is other motives can get mixed in. As they grow bigger, you, they, they end up with financial concerns. And sometimes those financial concerns can start to drive their, their decisions. Or pride can get mixed in. We are the church that's doing this ministry. And we can lose the sight of what we're ultimately doing it for. Pride can get mixed in with the other motives. Or, or the desire for the praise of men. Can, can be a motive that gets mixed in with that love. So Paul's prayer is that God would preserve the, the precious, sincere love that, that they have and that he appreciates so, so much, that God would preserve that love and even cause it to grow without letting it become something else or mixed in with, with something else. And he prays them that their love would keep them blameless, or in other words, free from sin, because nothing ruins a church. Nothing ruins Christian ministry like sin. Satan can wage war with all the most violent persecution, and it might shake the church, as it certainly was for the Philippians, but even that shaking only refines and strengthens their faith. But sin 
Sin absolutely shipwrecks Christian churches and ministries. So Paul's prayer for this church is that they would have this, this knowledge and discernment to approve what's excellent in doctrine and in life, and, and that their love would then be sincere, that it would be pure, unmixed, and, so that it, and that it would then ultimately be backed up by the testimony of a pure and blameless life. That the world could look at this Philippian church and say, I find no wrong with that church. There is nothing that we can accuse that church of in terms of sin. So that's Paul's prayer for the Philippians. Let's, let's read it over again, starting in verse 9, to see where he's going then. He says, It's my prayer that your love for Christ, for the gospel, may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so you may approve what is excellent, what is good, what is worthwhile, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled, he says, with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So righteousness, he says, is the fruit of knowing Jesus Christ. A righteous life is the result of, of an encounter with Christ. Righteousness is the fruit of that love. And it's also the proof of that love. The, the love that the Philippians had for Christ and for the gospel had proven itself by their righteous life thus far, also in the way that they supported Paul and took care of him. And so Paul prays that not only would that love increase, but that it would be confirmed and proven by the righteousness that must necessarily flow out of the gospel. A church that claims to believe the gospel, if that claim is sincere, there will be righteousness as its fruit. So this is on the, the flip side of Paul's prayer that they would be blameless. Not only would their love be unmixed and, and would be pure, but also, and not only that their lives would be blameless, but also that their lives would have the opposite of sin, the fruit of righteousness. So he calls righteousness a fruit of, of the gospel, believing in, in the gospel, coming to know Christ, and knowing that, that God has sent Christ to suffer and die for your sins so that you can be reconciled to him, the righteous, holy God, that knowing that and believing that always necessarily changes one's attitude towards sin. Always. It cannot not change your attitude towards sin. That's the fruit of the gospel. Just like if, if there's an apple tree, this is a metaphor that, that uh, Christ himself used, although I don't think it was an apple tree. But say there's an apple tree and it doesn't produce any apples, you know that there's something wrong with that tree. So it is with a Christian who might claim to know the gospel if there is no Christian fruit which Paul says is righteousness, the fruit of righteousness, if that fruit isn't there, if there isn't a radically different attitude towards sin and a fundamentally changed life, then you know that there's something wrong with that faith. So Paul's prayer for the Philippian church that he loves so dearly is that they as a church would not become that tree that has all the claim of being a Christian tree, so to speak, but with none of the Christian fruit. His prayer is that they would be filled 
with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And that ought also then to be our prayer for this church, that we would not just be a Reformed church with good Reformed doctrine and a good Reformed profession, but filled with the fruit of righteousness that ought to flow from that profession. That not only would we love Christ and love the gospel, but that love, that that love would show itself in a desire to be righteous Christians, to be Christians that follow the word of God and do what he calls us to do and be what he calls us to be. Now, notice, brothers and sisters, Paul isn't saying this at all as a rebuke against the Philippians. There is a sense of warning in these words, in in this prayer, but Paul doesn't mean this as a rebuke. He's writing this with the most tender, sincere love for for a church that, as he said in verse 7, he held very dear in his heart, and a church that he felt confident that God, who had begun a good work in them, would complete it on the day of glory. So Paul isn't saying this at all as a rebuke to, to the Philippians. He was confident that their love was sincere. But his prayer was still that that love would grow and continue to show itself in the fruit of righteousness. That their lives would demonstrate the proof that they believe the gospel. And, and he was confident that, he, that they would indeed show that fruit, but nevertheless he insists on praying for them anyways. He understood how easy it is for a church to fall away from its first love. That's the words that the Lord Jesus himself used of, of, of the church in Ephesus. They had fallen away from their first love. And so he was confident that the Philippian church would not go that way, but he nevertheless prayed for them. And the same, of course, ought to be true for us. We must pray for our church. We can give thanks for the many blessings God has given to us, the faith that really is at work in so many of the members here. There, there are so many evidences of believers who love Christ, who love the gospel, whose lives show the fruit of that righteousness, who are very much, just like the Philippians, involved in the service of the gospel. And yet it's important and necessary that I encourage you, that you encourage each other to let our lives be filled with the fruit of righteousness that ought to flow from that profession. Paul prayed that for this small church in Philippi, and we ought to be praying it for one another also here in Alora. Finally, very briefly, let me just focus on that last phrase in verse 11, and we'll close on that. He says, he prays all for, for all of this to be true of the Philippians, to the glory and praise of God. That's how he finishes his prayer. That's the ultimate goal of our pursuit of righteousness. And it's the point, the goal of our love for Christ and for the gospel. All of it serves the ultimate goal of the praise and glory of God. We love the gospel because we love the glory of God. Because we've come to see how good how precious, how worthy, how valuable, infinitely valuable our God is. That's what makes the gospel precious. The glory of God is what gives the gospel its worth. And so Paul prayed that the love of this tiny persecuted church, that their love would abound more and more, that it would result in lives filled with righteousness, and so that all of this 
would have the ultimate result of the praise and glory of God. And you're going to see this more often in Philippians, that this is still Paul's ultimate motivation. He's motivated by his love for the church. He's motivated by his desire to fulfill his own calling as an apostle. But his greatest motivation, the thing that drives Paul, you see this again and again in Philippians, his greatest motivation is that God would get the glory that God deserves. That's what motivated Paul's mission. It's the knowledge of God's worth that stands behind our love for God and that motivates our pursuit of God's righteousness. And when that love shows itself, when it demonstrates itself, and when our lives do reflect God's righteousness, then the glory and the worth of God is magnified, not only in our own midst, but also for others in the world to see. And that's our ultimate goal as a church, that God would be magnified among us and throughout the world. So, brothers and sisters, it is my prayer that as we study this letter to the Philippians in the next several months, that our love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that we may test and approve what is good and excellent so that we may be unmixed in our motives and blameless in our lives so that this church in Alora would also be filled with the fruit of righteousness that Paul desired for the Philippians to have, that righteousness that comes from knowing Christ. And so that through all of that, as a result of all of that, that God would be magnified and glorified among us, first in our own hearts and then also by in the hearts of all the people that we come into contact with, those whom God gives us the opportunity to witness to. So then, may God bless our study of his word in the next several months so that he may be glorified among us. Amen.